Hey, listen, uh, part of our series on why Israel matters, it's, uh, we get the opportunity, the privilege of being able to hear from some of the greatest speakers in the entire nation on the topic of the Middle East. This morning, we have the rare privilege of hearing from someone who's not only a professor and author of more than 15 books on the Middle East and prophecy, he's also pastor of Faith Bible Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. So let's have a great Big Valley welcome for Dr. Mark Hitchcock. Thank you. Well, it is great to be here with you. It's great to be uh, back here with you, and I want to uh, certainly thank Eternal Praise for that beautiful music this morning. What a blessing that is to us. I want to welcome the folks out in the uh, venue uh, as well who are joining us, and uh, it's great to be back here. I want to thank uh, Pastor Countryman for inviting me to be back in this wonderful church. My wife, Cheryl, is with me as well. Cheryl, you can wave your hand over there. You guys can see Cheryl. It's always great to have her be able to uh, travel with me these days. Uh, we got to uh, come over to San Francisco on Thursday. Uh, that was our, uh, our, our 26th anniversary on Thursday. And uh, we came there to uh, San Francisco on our honeymoon all those years ago. So, And uh, the cool weather's great. I mean, in Oklahoma, it's just now really starting to get hot there. Uh, we had a brutal summer last summer. I mean, it's 110, 12, 13 every day. It seemed like on and on. In fact, our July was the hottest month in the history in the United States. The mean temperature is 89.5 degrees if you took every moment of every day. And, you know, it was so hot there, they said the cows were given evaporated milk. I mean, it was hot <laughs> there in Oklahoma. So it's great to, uh, to get out here. I mean, I know we're in Modesto, but it, it feels good even to us here. Uh, so it's cooler here. So it's great to be here and to be a part of this ongoing series that I know is uh, titled Why Israel Matters. And let me just uh, say up front that Israel matters because God has made promises to Israel uh, that He's going to fulfill. I mean, in the bottom line, that's why Israel matters. Many people in the church today are uh, believing the idea that the promises to Israel have been transferred to the church, that the promises God made to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been absorbed by the church. This is called often replacement theology, or sometimes it's called supersessionism. That's a big word for it, but that simply means that uh, the church has superseded Israel um, in God's program. I like what one man I read years ago said about that. He said, that's the greatest case of identity theft in human history. And I like that. Now, the church coming along and stealing the identity uh, of Israel. But I'm thankful for a church and for a pastor who take the promises of God to Israel literally and who will focus an entire series um, on the nation of Israel. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm thankful to be able to be here today. Uh, Pastor Countryman asked me to address uh, the topic of Jews and Muslims, why all the fighting? There's a, a great story I ran across several years ago that's told by uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner. He tells of a young man who came home from Sunday school after being taught uh, the biblical story of the crossing of the Red Sea. And his mother asked him what he'd learned, and he said, well, the Israelites got out of Egypt, but Pharaoh and his army chased after them. They got to the Red Sea and couldn't cross it, and the Egyptian army was getting closer. So Moses got out his walkie-talkie, and the Israeli Air Force bombed the Egyptians. And the Israeli Navy built a pontoon bridge so the people could cross it. And his mother was shocked, and she says, is that the way they taught you the story? And the little boy admitted, he says, well, no, but he says, if I told you what they said, you'd never believe it. Well, you know, as you think about it, the same thing might be said about the whole history of the nation of Israel. 
because much of the history of the nation of Israel is really laced with the unbelievable. Modern Israel seems to share that heritage of ancient Israel in many ways. The unbelievable has almost become commonplace, really, with the nation of Israel, and it's usually accompanied by conflict. Few nations have found themselves so continuously in uh, the maelstrom as the nation of Israel, that tiny little nation uh, no larger than uh, the state of New Jersey. So to appreciate the dilemma and to kind of catch the present drama that's there and also to understand why this Jewish-Muslim conflict has raged for centuries, I want to gather our thoughts this morning around three main points, three simple points. I want to look first at the perpetual conflict. That's where we'll spend most of our time. Then I want to just look briefly at the prophetic consummation, where this is all headed And then I want to close by looking at uh, the practical challenge, how this relates to our lives today. Well, I want to begin with this idea of the perpetual conflict. A lot of you uh, may have seen or may know about this uh, show that's on the History Channel right now. I think it may have just ended, but it's called The Hatfields and McCoys. Uh, Some well-known actors are in it, and I haven't seen it yet. My uh, son-in-law, my son and daughter-in-law have uh, taped it for me because they know how much I love uh, cowboy movies and all of that. But it's very popular, and it's gotten rave reviews. But the reason there's so much attraction to that, I think, is you know, it talks about an old blood feud between these two families, the Hatfields and the McCoys, uh, one of them from West Virginia, the other one across the river in Kentucky. Um, it lasted for about 30 years, about an entire generation. But there's something interesting to us about family feuds that persist for years. I mean, we have kind of a, a morbid fascination with families like that that go and fight for long periods of time. We, we ask ourselves, why did it start? Now, why did it go on so long? What happened? Now, we're fascinated by uh, these feuds. And the same, I think, is true of the seemingly endless conflict between the Jews and the Muslims. We ask ourselves, how did this thing get started? Why has it been going on so long? Uh, What's going to happen ultimately? But we have front row seats, really today with cable television, 24-7 news. We have front row seats to a feud that's been going on for all these years, all the way back to the two sons of Abraham, to Isaac, who, who was born of Sarah, and Ishmael, who was born of his handmaid, uh, Hagar. Now, to really understand the clash between Jews and Muslims, we have to understand the Bible, and we have to understand Islam. Islam was founded in the 7th century A.D. by a man named Muhammad, I'm sure all of you know that, um, who founded this religion in Arabia. He claims to have received revelation, direct revelation from God that was dictated to him by the angel Gabriel. And he he claims to have received this over a period of 22 years. This revelation was written down in a book called the Quran, which means literally the recitation. In other words, this is the stuff that was recited to him. And it has 114 chapters, or uh, they're called surahs. So you often see in, you know, surah, you know, 5.8 or whatever. It's kind of like our chapter and verse um, in our Bible. There are five pillars of Islam. The first one is you have to confess that none but Allah has the right to be worshipped and that Muhammad is his messenger. Kind of self-serving, right? I mean, Muhammad wrote this, and there's only one God who's Allah, and, of course, Muhammad is his messenger. The second thing is you have to pray five times a day. 
And supposedly Muhammad talked God down from 50 times a day to five times a day. So I'm sure the Islamic people appreciate that. Uh, the third thing is you have to give alms. You have to give 2.5% of your money away as alms to the poor. You also, if you can afford it, sometime during your life, you have to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. It's called the, the Hajj or the pilgrimage. And finally, you have to fast during the holy month of Ramadan. So those are the five great pillars of Islam. But what's interesting right up front, you'll notice, Islam is based on works. It's based on what we do. It's based on what people do. And that's the, that's the great difference that it has between Islam and biblical Christianity is biblical Christianity teaches that none of us deserve salvation. There's nothing we can ever do to merit it. In fact, we, we do everything to not deserve it. But God in His grace comes, and He saves us through His Son, Jesus Christ. By the way, followers of Islam don't ever know if they're saved or not. They don't know if they're going to go to heaven. They have no assurance. Uh, they believe that, you know, you're going to go on a long roast over hell, you know, and some people it'll be shorter and some it'll be longer before they finally get to paradise. But no assurance of salvation. Uh, in the 7th century, Islam spread very quickly. They conquered by the sword and conquered vast amounts of territory, and they took the, the land of Israel. Uh, you remember the Jews were dispersed in 70 A.D., the Jewish people were conquered by the Romans in 70 A.D. The temple was destroyed. They were scattered abroad. But some Jews stayed there, and the final dispersion of the Jews really was in 135 A.D. It's an important date to remember. There was a, a rebellion by a, a Messianic figure named Bar Kokhba. And after the Bar Kokhba rebellion, the Jews were scattered all over the world. Well, when Islam comes along in the 7th century A.D., Islam, the Arabs, they take the land of Israel. And through the Arabs, then later through the Mamelukes, then later through the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Turks, Islam controlled the land of Israel except for a few small periods of time during the Crusades. They held the land of Israel from the 7th century all the way up to the beginning of the 20th century. It wasn't until... Uh, Allenby, General Allenby came in, the, the British general, conquered the Ottoman Turks there, ran them out of the land of Israel um, in uh, the, the late, uh, in like 1918, 1919, in that period of time, that uh, Islam no longer controlled uh, the land of Israel. So that's a little bit of the history of this. Now, there's two key sources of conflict. Um, you know, we could talk about all kinds of things here this morning in the time we have, but I've tried to boil it down in my own mind to make it simple. And the two key sources of conflict between Jews and Muslims is what Islam says about the Jews and what Islam and the Bible say about the land of Israel. So the two key issues are the people, that is the Jewish people and the land of Israel. Those are really the two key uh, issues where the rub comes in. Now, when it comes to Islam and the Jews, it's a mixed bag. When you read the Quran, there are a lot of favorable things about the Jews and a lot of terribly negative, hateful things about the Jews, which right there to me, that raises a red flag because there's an internal inconsistency in the Quran itself. You know, why does it say positive things? And then why does it say these horrible negative things as well? Most scholars would explain it this way. Over the 22 years that Muhammad allegedly received these revelations from uh, Gabriel, his view changed. See, early on, he wrote some nice things about the Jews but he was, because he was trying to get the Jews to convert, convert over to follow after Allah and to see him as the prophet. 
But when the Jews and the Christians rejected Muhammad and rejected his religion, then he turned against them and began to write a bunch of bad, nasty, evil stuff about them. So really the reason it changed was because of their response to him, not because of uh, any revelation, I believe, that he's receiving. But, you know, Islam even teaches, some of it in Islam believe that the Jews are descended from pigs and apes and other animals. There's a virulent strain of anti-Semitism within Islam. They have a hatred and they despise the Jewish people. Now, I believe, though, that there's something far deeper to all of this. I think there's a hidden force behind the scene that's energizing and empowering the anti-Semitism we see today and we see throughout history and especially that we see within Islam. We won't turn there, but you might read this during the week. You might read Revelation chapter 12. It gives us the age-long struggle between Satan and the Jewish people. Satan's pictured there as a great red dragon. And you have Satan there pictured trying to kill this man-child, the Messiah, when he's born, which, of course, is Jesus, which he tried to, to do through Herod. But, of course, he wasn't able to keep the Messiah from coming, so Messiah came, he died on the cross, he rose again, he ascended to heaven. So Satan now has engaged in plan B, which if you keep reading in Revelation 12, during the future tribulation period, he's going to try to wipe out the Jewish people. And Israel is pictured there as a woman who flees into the wilderness. And the point I'm making about all of this is that from the very beginning when God put his finger on Abraham and chose Abraham and his descendants, Satan has had an age-long battle to try to wipe them out. Because isn't it interesting, there's never been an age-long hatred of the Irish or an age-long hatred of the Italians. But the Jewish people, wherever they have gone throughout their entire history, they have been hunted and they have been hounded and they've been persecuted and they've been killed. It goes all the way back to the beginning. You see, there has to be something deeper to this than just a group of people that some people don't like. And I think the only way to explain it is to read the Scripture and go over and look at a place like Revelation 12. It explains what's going on there behind the scene. Have you ever noticed, though, that every time people try to wipe out the Jews, the Jews always get a holiday? Have you noticed that? Pharaoh tried to wipe them out, and they got the Feast of Passover. Remember uh, in the book of Esther, uh, Haman the Agagite tried to wipe them out. They got the Feast of Purim. During the intertestamental period, the time between the Old and New Testament, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes tried to destroy the Jews, and they got Hanukkah or the Feast of Lights. Hitler tried to wipe them out in the 30s and the 40s, and what did they get from that? They got May the 14th of 1948, which is the rebirth of the modern state of Israel. You can't get rid of them. I mean, as, as much as been tried throughout history, the Jews cannot be eliminated because God has made promises to them. And he'll be faithful to those promises, but Satan is trying to thwart the promises of God. Because if he can wipe out the Jews, he can keep God from fulfilling his promise for the Messiah to come and to rule over them in the land uh, that God's promised to give them. It's a story I read years ago about a, a suburban area where, uh, in one of the major cities, a very exclusive residential area, and a few Jewish people bought some sites there, and more and more of them began to uh, purchase homes there, and the community began to agitate to try to force the Jews out. 
And so a local pastor put out in front of his church out there on the church sign his sermon for the next Sunday, and the title of it was How to Get Rid of the Jews. Well, you can imagine this caused a huge furor, and the papers got involved and all of that. Well, when, the Sunday, uh, when that Sunday came, the church was jammed with people. A Jewish rabbi and two reporters walked down front and sat on the front row in the church. And the pastor announced, he said, my sermon this morning, and the title of it is How to Get Rid of the Jews. And he said, I want to read Jeremiah 31, 35 to 36. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who divides the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If these ordinances, the sun, the moon, and the stars depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Of course, the answer is how to get rid of the Jews, and the answer is you can't. God's made uh, these promises to them. And I love that Jeremiah text because it says that even in the midst, you remember when Jeremiah was written, it was the midst of their worst rebellion and their worst, worst apostasy. And yet God affirms his covenant promises uh, to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel. I like what Ronald DeProse says. Only in the case of the collapse of God's sovereign control over the physical universe would Israel cease to exist as a nation. What a promise uh, that is. But Islam's anti-Semitic sentiment, which I believe, and uh, this is a strong statement I know to make, but which I believe is energized and empowered by Satan, that's the first cause of this uh, continuing struggle that we see. Now, the second key to understanding this conflict is, is Islam, the Bible, and the land the land of Israel. Now, I'll mention this. Sometimes you'll hear Israel called Palestine, and I don't like that term for it. The word Palestine was given to the land in 135 A.D. by the Roman emperor, the Roman Caesar, Hadrian. And it's, it's a form of, it's the Hebrew word for Philistine, the Palestine. And so I don't like to call it the land of Palestine. That's not what it's called. It's called the land of Israel. But you'll hear it called that sometimes. And the people, of course, who lived there during some of that time today are called, you know, Palestinians. They're really just Arabs. But we see Islam's view of the world and the land versus the Bible's view of the land. Islam teaches that Abraham was a Muslim, and they claim descent from Abraham through Ishmael. And they maintain that the covenant promises were given to Ishmael, not to Isaac. They teach that it's, it's Ishmael that, that Abraham took up on Mount Moriah and he was going to sacrifice there and God stayed his hand, not Isaac. And they do that with a lot of the stories of the Old Testament. Now, we have to ask ourselves, which was written first, the Old Testament or the Quran? Well, the Old Testament, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament were written by Moses in 1400 B.C. Quran's not written until you know, 630 A.D., so it's just simply taking these Bible stories and reinterpreting them. It's a, it's a revisionist form of history. If you could put that first slide up there for me this morning, I'm a, this will, will kind of give you a little idea here. Islam divides the world into two parts. They have one called Dar as Salam, which is uh, the house of peace. And the house of peace is the land that's under Islamic sovereignty. And the second division is Dar al-Harb, which is the house of the sword, which is land and no longer under Islamic sovereignty. And 
For, for followers of Islam, the land of Israel belongs to Islam. It doesn't belong to any particular group of people, but it belongs to Islam. Now, here's where the rub comes in. If, if previous owners take back land that formerly was controlled by Islam, every able-bodied Muslim is expected to engage in jihad to get it back. So we've got a big problem here because Islam controlled from the 7th century to the early 20th century with just a few interruptions. They controlled that land, the land of Israel. They were defeated by uh, the Ottoman Turks, were defeated by the British in World War I, and so uh, it was divided up then after that period of time. But they believe it's under their control. Now, things were calm until the 20th century when the Jews began to come back to their land. As long as the Jews were spread out over 70 countries, now think about that. In 135 A.D., when the Jews were finally expelled from their land, they ended up being sent out and scattered over 70 different nations. Did you know that there's never been a group of people completely exiled from their land who ever remained a distinct people? The Jews have been exiled from their land numerous times. The last time, they were exiled to 70 different countries for 1,900 years. Yet God brought them back to the land. But as long as the Jews were spread out all over the world, see, they were no threat to Islam. But when they began to return to the land, which they started doing in the 1870s, kind of a, just a trickle coming back and began to gain some momentum in the 20th century, that's when the problems began. Really, the primary root of all the hostility between Muslims and Jews is really of modern origin because it's the Jews coming back to their land. And so the Jews began to come back, and there's been all kinds of twists and turns that have taken place. But the Holocaust in the 1930s and the 1940s, which, by the way, many uh, Arabs today and followers of, of Islam deny that there was a Holocaust. I always like to say in a strange irony, they deny the Holocaust, yet they want to repeat it, which is an interesting thing to think about. But the watershed event between Muslims and Jews was the establishment of the modern state of Israel in May of 1948. That's when the battle for the land really began. Now, if you'll put the next slide up there, this kind of just highlights the, the major wars. There have been more than this. There have been some more recent wars. And in 1982, there was a war in, with Lebanon. In 2006, they fought Hezbollah for 34 days. But these are the main wars. When the Jews, uh, when, when David Ben-Gurion announced the formation of the modern state of Israel, which on our calendar was May the 14th of 1948, um, Harry Truman, 11 minutes later, recognized the state of Israel. And some people's question has been, what took him so long? You know, only to 11 minutes you know, he recognized the modern state of Israel. When that happened, Israel was attacked by Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Iraq, five nations. There were 700,000 Jews living in the land of Israel at that time. There were 27 million Arabs in the surrounding countries. The Arabs had an army of 80,000 troops. Israel had 60,000, but only 20,000 of them were fully armed. And the battle went on for about a year's time, and the Jews ultimately prevailed um, in that battle. Of course, there was all kinds of agitation, but the next main war was 1956, the Suez War, where uh, Egypt threatened to close down the Suez Canal, and uh, Britain got involved, France got involved, Israel got involved, and, and finally the, uh, the Egyptians stood down on that. 
The next great war was 1967 when Israel, realizing they were getting ready to be attacked, launched a preemptive strike against Egypt. Egypt got involved, obviously, Syria, Jordan even got involved as well. It was June the 5th through June the 10th, that great six-day war. And uh, here in just a moment, I'll put a map up there to show you all the territory they took uh, during uh, that war. Uh, but they fought against uh, Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. Then in 1973, there was an event called the Yom Kippur War. It's sometimes called the October War. In October of 1973, when Syria and Egypt came down from the north and the south to the land of Israel, and they came in on Yom Kippur with the Day of Atonement, the most holy day for the Jewish people. In fact, uh, they had a hard time rallying the troops to even get them out because they were all in synagogue. They were all in places of worship. And they were attacked on that uh, great holy day. We'll turn to that next uh, slide where the map is. And I hope you can see this well. Uh, hopefully, you can at least see the colors. The, the lighter colors that are up there show the land that Israel had before 1967. Then notice that huge green area down at the bottom. That's the Sinai. Israel took all of that from Egypt in 1967. Uh, they took the Gaza Strip from Egypt. They took the West Bank area, they're the so-called West Bank, from Jordan, and they took that part on the top right up there, the little green part up there. That's the Golan Heights that they took from Syria. Now, that's why in 1973, the Egyptians and the Syrians came against Israel because the Egyptians wanted the Sinai back and the Syrians wanted uh, the Golan Heights back. And um, Israel finally gave the Sinai back to Egypt in uh, 1979 when Jimmy Carter brokered, brokered uh, the Camp David Accords. And so Israel gave that back, but they still control the Golan Heights up in the north. But it's been one big battle and conflict after another. But Israel has enjoyed incredible military success. It's a story I heard one time about a group of Arabs were walking along, and they heard a voice from down over a hill, and it said, one Jew can whip 25 Arabs. Well, they were really upset and sent 25 troops over the hill. They hear some noise and shooting, and all of a sudden, it's dead quiet. Then they hear a voice that comes over and says, one Jew can whip 50 Arabs. Well, now they're really upset and send 50 men over the hill, and again, they hear some noise and shooting, and then it's dead quiet again. So finally, they hear a voice that says, one Jew can whip a hundred Arabs. So they send their hundred best troops down over the hill, and there's all this fighting and commotion that takes place. Finally, one Arab with his clothes all torn and tattered comes running back up over the hill, and he says, go back, go back. He says, it's a trap. There's two of them. <laughs> now, that's what it's been like for a modern-day nation of Israel. And uh, God has uh, protected them, hasn't he? But the front line of this conflict today between Israel and Muslims is the so-called Palestinians. And I don't have time this morning to go into that issue, but the Palestinians are used, I believe, by these other Muslim nations as a pawn to get uh, international sympathy. And they're just a thorn in the side of, of the Jewish people that are there. And the, the, the Muslims just keep using them as a pawn uh, in this game and their desire to get the land back. But sprinkled in with all these wars, there have been the ongoing, quote, Middle East peace process. You know, there's been the Camp David Accords, the Oslo Accords, the Roadmap to Peace. On and on it goes. But Muslims believe that it's okay to lie in order to temporarily get peace to give you time to rearm so you can do what you want to do later. 
That's basically their view of this is they want to, to enter into peace agreements periodically so they can rearm, so they can uh, come against Israel later. Because the problem is as long as Israel is in that land, they can never rest. They can't rest as long as Israel possesses the land. By the way, uh, you notice the, the old 1967 borders. It's just that light area. That's what President Obama told Netanyahu, Netanyahu he wanted Israel to go back to. That's them to go back to. Well, the problem was when they had the 67 borders, they didn't have peace then either. You know, I mean, that's when they got attacked. So uh, one, one person in Israel called those Auschwitz borders for the land of Israel, and uh, they refused to go back to that. But all of this raises the, the important question, who owns the land? Who owns the land of Israel? Uh, turn in your Bibles to, Revelation, to, to uh, Genesis 12. I'm sorry, Genesis 12. Because both sides make historical and political claims to the land. And I'm not going to get into all of that. We don't have enough time for it. But our focus will be what does the Bible say about the land? The term Israel appears over 2,000 times in the Old Testament and about 70 times in the New Testament. And it all begins with the covenant God made with Abraham. Now look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, now Abram's down in Ur of the Chaldees, not near, near modern-day uh, ancient Babylon, modern-day Iraq. He says, go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And notice it's the singular, the one who curses you, literally, I must curse. And in you all, the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions, what they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Now, God makes promises to Abraham. He makes some personal promises. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. It's a promise that's personal to Abraham, and that's been fulfilled in history. He makes universal promises to Abraham. He says, and you and your descendants, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And we have been blessed through the Jewish people and through the Scriptures, and through the Jewish Messiah. But he also made national promises to Abraham. He said, I'm going to give you many descendants. I'm going to make you, uh, your descendants a blessing, and I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. And the only foreign policy statement I can find anywhere in the Bible, a universal foreign policy statement, is Genesis 12.3. Those who bless Israel will be blessed. The one who curses Israel, God must curse. And we've seen that borne out time and time again throughout history. In fact, I think that may be one of the reasons why God is blessing our country, has blessed our country in spite of a lot of the problems we've had because we've been a friend to the Jewish people. Now, again, that doesn't mean we have to rubber stamp everything Israel wants to do or agree with every decision they make, but it means that we need to be a friend and a supporter of the Jewish people. Now, notice what God told Abram, though, when he was down in Ur. He says, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your father's house, and I want you to leave your relatives. When Abram left Ur, who did he take with him? His father's house and his relative Lot. When they get up to Haran, up north of Israel, uh, in the previous verses here, Abram's father, Terah, died. 
So when that happened, he'd fulfilled the second prong of the promise. He'd left the land. He'd left his father's house. But when he went down to Canaan, he took Lot with him, his relative. Well, you get down to chapter 13, and Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen began to fight with one another, and so they separated. And so finally, the, the final prong had been fulfilled. He'd left his land, he'd left his father's house, and he'd left his relatives. And when that happens, God, down in chapter 13 and uh, verse 15, says this, All the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants. And now a new word is added here, forever. I will give to you and your descendants this land forever. And I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Now, that's the promise God made. But God solemnizes this or memorializes this with a covenant, a blood covenant. If you go on and read in chapter 17, God makes a promise to Abram that he's going to give him a son through him and Sarah. And then look down in uh, verse uh, 9, or or let me me, uh, start at verse 8. God says, I'm going to give you this land to possess it. And he says, O Lord, how may I know that I'll possess it? And God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove and a pigeon. And he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and darkness fell upon him. So you took the parts of these animals, and you cut them in half, and you threw half of the carcass over here and the other half over there. And then what would happen in that day is when you entered into a blood covenant is each of the parties would walk through those pieces. And what you would do by by walking through those pieces is you were saying, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, then may I end up like these animals we're walking through. In other words, you were pledging your life, your own blood, as you made the covenant. Well, Abram does all this, and notice he falls asleep. And he wakes up down in verse 17, and it came about when the sun had set, and it was very dark, to behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. It's God himself. This is a theophany, an appearance of God, a a visible manifestation of God like a smoking oven and a flaming torch walking between the pieces. Now, notice Abram never walks between the pieces. God is the only one in this who makes a covenant and who makes promises. Abram's over there sacked out. He just wakes up in time to see this happening. And God, it says in verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. See, it's a unilateral covenant. It's only one party who makes the promises. It's unconditional. God makes no conditions upon Abram for it, and it's eternal. The covenant God makes with Abram is a unilateral, unconditional, eternal covenant. And he goes on down and promises the land. He says, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river of the Euphrates, the the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, and you like to say the termite, the electric light. I mean, you can go on and on with all those ites there. They're all over. But notice the point here is, is God gave Abraham and his descendants the title deed to the land. And the Jews are the only people in history that God ever promised a particular piece of land. 
Um, he didn't promise the Canadians, Canada, or uh, the, the people who live in uh, Brazil, Brazil. God promised the Jewish people this land. And God defines the land in definite terms and clear geographic boundaries. The northern boundary is 100 miles north of Damascus in, in Syria. The southern boundary is 100 miles south of Jerusalem. It includes parts of Lebanon and Syria and Iraq today. And the Jewish people have never possessed that land that was promised to them. And so I believe they have to possess it someday, and they will possess it during the Messianic kingdom when Christ comes to reign. Now, here's something very important to remember. There's a difference between ownership of the land and occupation of the land. The Jews own the land, but God has kicked them out of the land several times, hasn't he? So they haven't permanently occupied it. They've been exiled from the land many times, but any time God decides to bring them back to the land, they own it. It's their land. The land was never, ever promised to the Arabs or to the Palestinians. They have no biblical right to the land. The land does not belong to them. It belongs to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and lo and behold, there they are today. God has brought them back there. It's an eternal covenant. I like what it says in Genesis 17, verse 8. Listen to this. You couldn't make it any clearer than this. Uh, Genesis 17, 7 and 8. I will establish my covenant between you and me and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you the land to your descendants after you and the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And we won't take time to read it, but God goes on later and he reiterates this same promise to Isaac, not to Ishmael, but to Isaac. And then through Isaac, it's promised to Isaac's son, Jacob. It's reiterated to him and then ultimately given to his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. The land of Israel belongs to the Jews. Now, another point of contention within the land is the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem has been a perennial problem, and it's ironic that the city of Jerusalem means the city of peace, and it's been anything but that, hasn't it? But Israel, Israel controls Jerusalem, but Muslims control what's called the Al-Aqsa Mosque up there on the Temple Mount, and Al-Aqsa means the far away or the distant mosque, and it's on the Temple Mount there in Israel. And in fact, uh, yeah, I've got a slide of it here. You can see that's the Temple Mount area, about 35 acres. And, of course, the Dome of the Rock sits there in the middle of it, and that's where the Jewish temple, where the Holy of Holies uh, used, to, used to stand. Now, there's a big problem in Bible prophecy because the Bible says that one of these days the Jews are going to rebuild the temple there on that site. Now, people will always say, how in the world are the Jews ever going to build a temple there and tear down uh, the Dome of the Rock? They say it's impossible. It could never happen. Well, those same people were saying 100 years ago, or their, their predecessors were saying to Jews, how are they ever going to get back to the land? Seems impossible. Well, they're there today. And it could be that uh, through the War of Gog and Magog, we're going to talk about in a few moments, and the, the armies of, of the Islamic nations being wiped out, the Jews will be able to do that. But right down on the bottom there, you see a, a building down there kind of on the bottom left there on the Temple Mount inside the wall. That's that Al-Aqsa Mosque. 
And Muslims believe that the land of Israel belongs to Islam, and they believe because that's their third most holy site. It's the third most holy site in Islam after Mecca, Mecca and Medina. It's although the, the Quran never mentions Jerusalem, and Muhammad never set foot there except in a night vision that he had. But yet they claim it's their third most holy site, and of course they believe that that land can never be given up by them, and, and the war is going to continue over there as long as the Jews are in the land. That's the problem. The only acceptable solution for the, from the Muslim perspective is the elimination of Israel. They have to be driven into the sea, and that's what uh, they all desire. So why all the fighting between Islam and between the Jewish people? Because they despise the Jews and they desire the land. That's the reason. That is a very brief summary, but that gets to the heart of the issue of this ongoing blood feud between uh, the Jewish people and Muslims. Now, I want to just cover one final point here real quickly, and that is where is all this headed? What does the future hold? I want to just mention briefly what I call the prophetic consummation of all this. Let me just kind of give you a little overview of prophecy real quickly. I believe the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. I believe it's an event that could happen at any moment in time. Uh, whenever I'm uh, here in California, especially in San Francisco, I always like to remind my wife, I always say, I hope the, the big one doesn't happen, you know, while we're here. You know, the big earthquake everybody's expecting, right? Oklahoma, we have the tornadoes, you know, that come through there all the time. Out here, I guess it's the earthquake. But I liken that to the rapture because everybody knows the big one's coming, right? But nobody knows when it's going to happen, and it could happen at any moment. And it's the same way with the rapture. At any moment in time, Jesus can come and he can catch his bride away, his church, and take us to heaven to be with himself. And that's the great hope that we have. One of my old friends used to say, I'm looking for the upper taker, not the undertaker. And that's the hope uh, that we're all to have. But after the rapture, there's going to be some period of time, and then the Antichrist is going to come and make a treaty with Israel, a peace treaty, which again, seeing all this Muslim-Jewish conflict, what do people in the world want more than anything else? They want peace over there. And the Antichrist is going to come and make a peace treaty. So we can see how all this fighting and feuding fits in with what the future holds. Let me say this uh, kind of in these events I've talked about. When the rapture happens, the rapture doesn't start the seven-year tribulation. The, part that the, the purpose of the rapture is to end the church age. So when the rapture takes place, this current church age will end. And again, there will probably be some gap of time there where further preparations will take place, further stage setting. But at some point, this Antichrist figure will rise, and he will make this treaty with Israel for seven years of time, this peace treaty, probably bring Israel to peace with her neighbors around her. And I think the Antichrist, he'll be time's man of the year. I mean, he'll win the Nobel Peace Prize. The whole world will look to him. But while Israel is at peace during that first three and a half years of the tribulation period, I believe that, the Anarch, that, that, that these uh, nations, these Islamic nations, are going to pour down into the land of Israel to try to wipe them out once and for all. If you put that next slide up there, I, I call this the final jihad. It's, it's Ezekiel 38 and 39. And Ezekiel 38 and 39 come right after the 37th chapter of Ezekiel, which pictures the regathering of the Jewish people to their land in the end times. You know, the old dry bones vision of Ezekiel. 
And when they've been regathered to their land, it says these nations, and this is the, uh, these are the ancient names of these nations that are in Ezekiel 38. But if we look at where those places were uh, in about uh, 570 B.C. when Ezekiel wrote this, you put them on a map today, put is, should actually be, I ran out of room on the map, a little further left, it's modern-day Libya. Kush is modern-day Sudan, a radical Islamic nation. Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Togarma, all in modern-day Turkey, which is becoming a more, more and more radical Islamic nation all the time. It's being uh, rebuffed by the European Union. You've got Rosh or Rosh, which is, uh, which is modern-day Russia. It's the only one of these nations that's not Islamic. You have Magog, which is all the uh, nations of Central Asia. Sixty million Muslims live there. And, of course, finally, you have Persia, which the name was changed from Persia to Iran in March of 1935. And in 1979, it became the Islamic Republic of Iran. These nations are going to come down to Israel to try to wipe the Jewish people out for one final time. And I think it's going to happen during that first three and a half years of the tribulation when Israel's going to be at peace and at rest. And when they come into the land, if you read the passage, God's going to wipe them out. He's going to destroy them in the land of Israel. With all these Islamic armies destroyed, what's going to happen? There's going to be a huge power vacuum. And that's what I think is going to allow the Antichrist then to come to world power and to rule and reign for that final three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. And he's going to persecute the Jewish people because Antichrist, he's going to be energized by Satan, that same enemy that wants to get rid of the Jewish people. So he's going to unleash fury against them. They're going to be put in the vice. And to me, the most beautiful picture in all the Bible pictures the second coming of Jesus. In Zechariah 12, 10, it says there that God is going to pour out on the Jewish people the spirit of grace and supplication. They're going to look upon him whom they've pierced, and they're going to mourn for him like one mourns for an only son. The Jewish people are going to turn in mass to Jesus as their Messiah, and he's going to come back to rule and to reign. Remember two days before Jesus went to heaven, what did he say to the Jews? He said, your house is going to be left to you desolate. The temple was going to be destroyed. Their nation was going to be destroyed. And then he made this statement, you will never see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Jews have to repent for their Messiah to come back. And that's what they're going to do as he's returning at his second coming. They're going to turn to him in mass and take him to be their Messiah. And he's going to come down from heaven, and he's going to set up his kingdom on this earth, and he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. And he's going to sit on David's throne, and he's going to rule the whole world, but the Jews are going to be given that land that God promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. God's going to keep uh, his promise to them. They're going to inherit the land in the Messianic kingdom. You might ask the question this morning, how does all this relate to us today? Well, let me say one way it relates to us is, to me, it's wonderful to know what's going on in this world. We don't know everything about it, but we know a lot of what's taking place in this world in which we live. And we can look ahead and we can see and make sense out of events that are taking place in this world. And I'll tell you, it gives me comfort to know somebody's driving the bus. I mean, you know, you look at this world, it looks like chaos a lot of times. But when you read the Bible, and you see where it's headed, you say, you know, I can see how things today are unfolding exactly the way the Bible says they're going to unfold. I can see where it's all headed. So to me, it gives us comfort. 
in these uncertain times we live in. Another thing it does is it teaches us and reminds us that God is faithful. God is faithful. God was, has been faithful to the Jewish people throughout their history, and he's going to be faithful to them all the way to the end. And that's good news for us. It's like Paul wrote in Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it till the day of Jesus Christ. God will see us through to the end. And if God threw his people, the Jewish people, under the bus and, and didn't uh, keep his promises to them, what confidence could we have that God's going to keep his promises to us? God is going to fulfill his promises to us and to them. You know, there's a beautiful scene in, uh, in Revelation 21, the last mention of the Jewish people. In, in uh, Revelation 21:12, we see the, the great city, the, the New Jerusalem, that 1,500-mile cube. It's like a floating continent. And the 12 gates into that great city, what's written on each of those 12 gates? One of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And I love that because if you go back and look at the men who were the, the, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, Reuben, Judah, Issachar, remember those are the men who sold their own brother to slavery. They let their poor father go on for decades believing his son was dead. When you go back and read about these men, they were a, a bunch of scoundrels, really, in the Old Testament. And the Jewish people that came from them, they often turned away from God. But there on the gates of the 12, there on the 12 gates into the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, are written one of each of the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And what that teaches me is this. No matter how sinful we may be, we can look up there and see the names of those men and their own sinfulness and how, what scoundrels they were, and we can know that any person, no matter how sinful, can enter into the new Jerusalem by the redeeming grace of God. And to me, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to know in our lives because we all fall short, don't we? We all need that grace of God. Well, make sure you're ready. I mean, that's really a message this morning. Put that, that final slide, if you would, up there. You just can kind of see how the stage is set. Look, Israel's regathered to their land. They were, they were gone 1,900 years. They're back. There's a world focus today on the Middle East. The Bible says the Middle East will be the final staging grounds for the end times. The whole world is focused there. We see this peace treaty that the Bible says is going to begin the seven-year tribulation. We see today how the world is clamoring for some kind of peace over there in the Middle East. And we see this Gog coalition, Ezekiel 38 and 39. We see these nations mentioned there forming alliances with one another today. They're identifiable nations that desire uh, to come against the land of Israel and to attack them. The stage is set. The Lord Jesus could come uh, at any time. And the question is, are we ready? My favorite verse in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When you take Jesus to be your Savior, God places all your sin upon Jesus. And not only does he take away all your sin, but in your heavenly bank account in heaven, God actually deposits the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. God forevermore will see you not in who you are, but he'll see you in the beloved. He'll see you through his son. If you've never trusted Christ, that's what you need to do this morning. You need to take this free gift of eternal life and accept that and have Christ be your Savior. Flee to him for refuge. 
little story I heard years ago about a young couple. They had a blind date set up at 7 o'clock, and the uh, time comes and goes. It's 7.30. It's 8 o'clock. The young man hadn't showed up yet, and finally the young lady believes she's been, been stood up, so she goes and uh, changes into her pajamas and uh, takes off her makeup, goes and pops some popcorn, sits down on the sofa with her dog to watch her favorite program on television. About 9 o'clock, she hears this knock on the door, and she goes to the door, and she opens it, and the young man's surprised, and she's surprised, and he looks at her, and he says, I'm two hours late, and you're still not ready yet? <laughs> so spoken like a true man, I know, right? <laughs> but we look around today, and, you know, people, uh, you know, they hear messages about the Lord coming back, and, and a lot of people, I think, have kind of given up hope. They said, well, I've heard these sermons for years. The Lord's never come back, and we've kind of let our guard down and become apathetic. One of these days, Jesus is coming back. One of these days, our bridegroom will come, and it could be today. And God wants us uh, to be ready when he comes. And my prayer for myself, for the church I pastor, for you here this morning, is that when Christ comes, we'll be found ready. Jesus said, be like men and women who are waiting for their master when he returns. May God help us to do that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you now and we thank you above everything else that you are a faithful God. Oh, Father, you've kept your word to the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And, Father, we believe that you keep your word to us as well, that all who flee to Jesus Christ for refuge will be saved. Their sins will be washed away. We'll get the free gift of eternal life. Father, if there's anyone here today who's never taken that free gift, right now in the quietness of their own heart and mind, may they say, I I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. I believe Jesus is the Savior that I need. I trust him now and take him to be my Savior from sin. Oh, Father, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the Jewish people. We pray that many of them will come to trust in Jesus as their Messiah before it's too late. And, Father, we pray for the Muslim people as well, held in bondage to a a religion of darkness and deception. We pray that many in the Muslim world could come to see Jesus Christ as God and put their faith and their hope and their trust in him alone. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the series that is ongoing here. pray that you'll continue to bless it, Lord, in the coming weeks. And, Father, I pray for all of us here that we would be ready and we'd be looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We ask these things in his dear name. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Hitchcock. Let's have a hand for I think it would be appropriate just to remind you of that last question that Dr. Hitchcock posed. Are you ready? Are you ready for Christ's return? Each of us should ask ourselves that question. And this morning, there is not a more important question than that one. So I want, I want to just encourage you, if, if you're not sure, if you say to yourself, I'm not sure of my relationship with the Lord. Listen, we would love to talk to you. Here to my left and over in the venue to up front to your right, there's, a, there's an altar room. That's a room where where we would love to pray with you and love to dialogue with you. If you just want to come to that room afterwards and just say, I'd like to talk to someone about my relationship with the Lord, we would love to talk to you. Lastly, uh, just to remind you, the culmination of the series on June 24th in the evening, right here in this worship center, there's going to be filled with tables, and we're going to celebrate together 
the Lord's Supper, but in a Passover way. It's uh, Christ in the Passover. It's a Seder meal. Uh, someone from the Jews for Jesus is coming to lead us in it, and it's going to be an incredible night. I just want to encourage you to be there. Listen, enjoy the rest of your Sabbath day and greet one another on your, on your way out. Thanks.